All right, we'll get, we'll get that. Let's take out your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, we're in the middle of a series on the topic of temptation called Forbidden Fruit. And uh, we are, have just been focusing on different passages that talk to us about the subject of temptation, how to fight spiritual battles, and I hope that's been helpful for you. We're going to look specifically here uh, at Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20. We won't be able to cover the entirety of the passage in depth, but there are a few things that I think we can focus in on here that are really going to help us. So I hope you'll read along beginning in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We pray now that as we give our attention to it, Lord, that you would use it in a powerful way to shape our hearts and minds. That you would not only allow us to hear and to understand, but to rejoice in the truth that we find. Lord, we pray that you would quiet our hearts now from the things that would distract us, from the things that concern us that are less important than what you want to speak to us. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning as we continue our study on temptation, it is obvious even from our passage that there is this theme woven into temptation of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare isn't a topic that we often discuss uh, or e often talk about, but today as we look at this, we're going to talk about the reality of a spiritual battle. And the truth is, you know, we are not always in touch with the level of sort of hand-to-hand -hand combat and type of warfare that was the norm during the times of the Roman Empire when Paul was writing these words. But if we consider what we have here, a, a, a battle was a time of utter disarray. Almost anything could happen from any direction. 
There was confusion, and once the battle began, the only real protection that someone had was the armor that they possessed. In the middle of that, those who remained standing were the ones who were best armed and ready to use what they had been equipped with. In many ways, we recognize this reality with any task. If you have to fix an automobile, it matters that you have the right tools to go into the battle with. And honestly, if you're trying to fix your own car, it's a bit of a battle. If you're trying to remodel a house, you can try it with old-fashioned tools, but having the right tools will make the difference about whether you are successful. Having the right tools in spiritual battle, being equipped, knowing that you have put them on can make all the difference in the fog of war that can be the reality of our lives. This passage has a very simple point at the center of it. At the center of it, this is the point that he is getting across to us. It says, if we are going to stand firm in the spiritual battle of life, we will need to learn to stay fastened with the Lord's strength. I must say that again. This is what we're going to be thinking about for the rest of the morning, that if we are going to stand firm in the spiritual battle of life, we will need to learn to stay fastened with the Lord's strength. Notice the first line of the passage we read. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of of his might. The rest of what he talks about, the allusion to spiritual warfare, the armor of God, is actually just unpacking what it means for us to find strength in the Lord, in the power of his might as we live our life and live out our calling. The application of that is that we would here take up the armor of God. That's what it looks like here to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So if we're going to stand firm in the spiritual battle, we'll need to learn to stay fastened in the Lord's strength. The whole of this passage is showing that. And you know the Apostle Paul who is writing this knew a little bit about being involved in the spiritual battle. You may be thinking that he is speaking these words from an ivory tower, but Paul lived a life of utter devotion to God. If we read the book of Acts, we see that from the time that he became a Christian, he began proclaiming the gospel in town after town throughout Asia Minor in the known Roman Empire, and he had a passion no matter what to do that. As he went around from place to place, he saw the Lord work in power, but he also experienced significant resistance. At the time of this writing, Paul is in prison. He's in prison. It would be easy in his circumstances to think that he is no longer in the spiritual battle. That in a sense he's been sidelined. That this isn't, this isn't God's will being played out in his life. And he is tempted to look at his circumstances and fail to realize that they are God's plan and God's Purpose. Have you ever been in that place where you're so overwhelmed by the circumstances that are going around you that it's difficult to stand firm seeing the purposes of God? This is where Paul is as he's writing these words. He's resting behind the spiritual armor as he sees that the very circumstances that feel like they have chained him from the freedom of engaging in the battle are actually the way in which God is upending the enemy. 
that by chaining Paul, God is advancing his cause and purpose through his life. You see, if he's not careful, he'll receive a new narrative and a new story about his circumstances that will close down the spiritual power that God wants to bring through his life. But Paul sees through them. In fact, you see at the end, he is, he is depending on this armor in the support of others in the battle that he might remain steadfast. He ends the passage in verse 19 saying, pray these things for me also. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which he says, I'm an ambassador in chains. You see it there? He's in chains. Easy to be ashamed. Easy to be beat down. To be ridiculed. He's imprisoned. I've never been in prison. Maybe some of you have. But there, I'd imagine it, you could very quickly fall prey to discouragement in his situation especially. There's a spiritual battle going on for him to open his mouth and proclaim the gospel where he's at. And there's one going on in our life in every way as we seek to do the Lord's will. The whole of this passage on the armor of God is really an explanation of what it means to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might when the battle is waged in our life. So let's see what, what he shows us here in this passage about doing that. I, I, I just I want to summarize it today with two things. I'm going to give them both to you up front, and then we'll walk our way through each one of them separately. If we are going to stand firm in the spiritual battle of life, we'll need to learn to stay fastened with the Lord's strength, and here's how we can do it. Number one, we must not be ignorant of the enemy's schemes. And number two, number two, we must not be inattentive to the provided armor. So two things. We must not be ignorant of the enemy's schemes and we must not be inattentive to the provided armor. So we're going to look at each of those in turn. Number one, we see here in the passage that we are reminded that we must not be ignorant of the enemy's schemes. Let's continue to read the passage. He says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against, and this, this is a great spot to underline, the schemes of the devil. There are not a lot of passages in the scripture that make it so clear about the spiritual battle as this one does, but this one does it quite well. We, listen, we face a spiritual enemy that has schemes. This is what this passage is telling us. There are set designs tricks, strategies, and even plans used against us to cause us to miss our spiritual calling and walking in the will of God. Now you may have walked in here not aware that that battle is going on, but all the worse for us if we do not admit the enemy we face. And here the passage is, is reminding us that not only are we in a battle, but our enemy has schemes. He's got designs. You know, this isn't the only place where we see this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. He, Paul is talking about forgiveness, and he says, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. 
Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Why? Why does Paul exercise forgiveness? <laughs> he says this. Here's the reason why. So that we, with a lack of forgiveness, would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. You know, isn't that interesting that even in a practical thing like forgiveness, Paul recognizes that Satan is often at work with designs and schemes? You know, sometimes we think of spiritual warfare as, as some sort of big moment in our life, but here he's saying in the practical things of for, learning to forgive and learning to receive forgiveness, we can be outwitted by the devil's schemes. You see, many of the practical decisions in our life are the actual battleground of spiritual warfare. We're reminded here that there's a spiritual enemy in our life that we can remain unaware of and through whom we can experience much harm. In 1652, English pastor Thomas Brooks published a set of sermons in a little devotional book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I would encourage each of you to read it. It's an incredible help to your devotional life, your spiritual growth. Precious remedies against Satan's devices. In it, he outlines a variety of these schemes sometimes we remain ignorant of. He outlines these schemes that we remain ignorant of and we often find ourselves easily at the mercy of schemes that we refuse to acknowledge, he says. So one of his pieces of advice is that in our spiritual life, we would begin to make clear the kind of schemes that Satan uses against us. You see, he says to not be ignorant means that we practice some spiritual self-reflection about the ways that we fall into sin and we become familiar with the types of schemes that Satan uses. He outlines like 18 or 20 in his book that are regularly seen in Scripture and in experience pastorally. I'm incredibly indebted, and what follows in the next four things is an amalgamation of Brooks' devotional and my own reflections on the present schemes that Satan often uses, not only in my life, but also in those that I have pastored over the last 20 years. And so I just want to mention four schemes that maybe you need to be aware of, but here's, here's the reason I mention them, because I think for your own spiritual health and good, you need to familiarize the way that he schemes against you, so that you can see it describe it and resist it because we rarely resist a scheme and a strategy that we don't understand so here's a couple satan paints a world absent of his operations one of the schemes of the devil is to paint a world that is absent of his operations in our mind one of the best ways to be successful at advancing your designs is to keep the enemy unaware of what you are doing or that you're even there. We live in a secular age, don't we? You know, as I, was, as I was preparing for this sermon, I felt the weight of it. I felt the temptation of Satan's schemes to say, people don't really believe this. I mean, do we really want to talk about a personal devil? Satanic evil? I mean, there's hardly, there's hardly any greater sense of evidence for 
the ways that we have absorbed our secular age than the fact that we would come to a spiritual gathering and deep down don't think that there's a personal enemy. That there's somehow a spiritual God who speaks to us, but it's foolish to believe that there's a spiritual enemy. One that might be at work strategizing against me. You see, the reality is, this world is far more than just flesh and blood, we're told in this passage. And that we are foolish and incapable of spiritual success and thriving if we believe that there's no spiritual dimension to life. It will cause us, because listen, here's the, here's the insight. Things are going on whether you acknowledge them or not. Spiritual powers are at work, he says, whether you acknowledge them or not. And to not acknowledge them, recognize them, and understand them the best that we can is to remain ignorant of Satan's scheme of painting a world absent of his operations. It is one thing to avoid the excesses of blaming all of our weaknesses and decisions on some scheme of Satan. We often bear culpability and responsibility for many of the foolish things that we do. But it's another thing altogether for us to ignore the fact of Satan's operation in our life and in our world. You are never prepared for the enemy that you ignore. So let me say clearly what the Bible teaches and this passage indicates to us about our spiritual enemy. Number one, Satan is a powerful angelic being who rebelled against God and seems to disdain the giving of God's image to humankind. What Satan hates most is the fact that we are God's image bearers and he has entrusted that responsibility to us. What he most wants to accomplish in us is to, to mar the image of God and the great glory that comes with being people who live to put him on display. He despises it. He, Satan led a rebellion of a host of other angelic beings against the designs and will of God for creation. Satan and his fallen angels have power to influence the thoughts and actions of people and to intensify their participation in sinful rebellion against God. You see, this is the primary way that Satan works. We can find all kinds of ways to sin on our own, but he adds fuel to the fire. You know, when we need another log to lay in there or a flamethrower, he stands ready to hand it to us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, he says in this passage. But instead, Paul says, against rulers and authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. That means something significant for us here this morning. That means that apart from God's operation on our behalf, there are powerful rulers who will overtake us spiritually, left to ourselves. And if you don't believe today that there are spiritual forces that will destroy your life without the saving grace of God, you will remain ignorant to the devices that hold you captive. That means some significant situation in your life right now may be a battleground where this sort of warfare or scheme is being played out against God as a proxy war against His glory in your life. And you need to be aware lest you further the wrong goals for the wrong purposes. So that's the first one. 
Satan presents to us a world absent of his operations. But we also recognize another, another scheme is Satan presents the bait and hides the hook. You know, we often see the initial pleasure of sin as you fight temptation. We see sort of the front-end pleasure of sin, but few people really let us into the pains and destruction that it brings in their life. Unless you're close to a situation where you can see it, we live incredibly private lives, don't we? One of the great dangers is the secrecy with which we deal with sin and its effect in our lives. We hide the pain that it causes. Very few people, because we're filled with a sense of shame and guilt, because we haven't trusted in the promise of Jesus that removes our guilt and shame, we find it impossible to talk about our past sins and to level with the ways that they're still affecting our life. And since we can't speak plainly, others don't benefit from seeing how sin is so destructive. And so all we see from the distance is people running headlong into sin, letting us know on social media of the great pleasures of their freedom and life, but we don't see the dark moments, the dark moments of the soul where sin has reaped its destruction. Part of confession Part of living in community is sharing the stories and the clarity that we've come to see about our past sin. Because we're resting in the gospel of Jesus, we're able to speak to one another and say, I want you to understand what this did, what I paid for, how it affected my life. Listen, we love easy fixes. We love to pretend that there's no effects to the past decisions that we have made, but there is no help to the body of Christ when we live in private Destruction from sin. And never point it out to one another and never warn one another. Listen, if somebody has the guts to warn you about a sin in your life or about the dangers of potential sin, don't be tempted to brush them aside and consider them too severe and serious and judgmental. We need, at least as a body here, this group of people, we need to embrace that as an act of love. A love that warns us of the dangers of sin experienced, not just the dangers of sin exposed and promised. Some of us bear scars from past decisions, patterns. Some of us carry the weight of the effects that that has had on our life. Listen, the good news of today's passage is that we have the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. That will not be the end of the story. Therefore, we can proclaim that victory and we can speak honestly about the pains. And if we don't do that, what happens is we will be prey when Satan presents the bait and hides the hook. The longer I pastor, the more I feel acquainted with the real effects of sin. One thing you might consider doing in your fellowship together as Christians is to name and share the real effects that sin has had in your life. So that's the second one. Third, Satan persuades the soul that repentance will be easy. One of his devices, schemes, is to persuade us that repentance will always be easy. We often, we, when, when, when we consider the prospect of sinful behavior, we always seem convinced that it'll be easy to part from it once we've given in. The scriptures tell us otherwise that to turn from sin is a gift of God's grace and it requires his spiritual power. 
the freeing work of the Holy Spirit over our life, that we become captives to the sins that we give our conscience over to. We become dulled to the effects of conviction in our life, and before you know it, we require the powerful working of God to rescue us out of the precarious situation we find ourselves in. But isn't it interesting, every time we're tempted by sin, we think, I can always change. I can always walk away when it gets too hot. Satan persuades the soul, repentance will be easy, but repentance, we are told, is a work of God's grace. Anyone who has attempted to turn from a sin that they've been caught in knows otherwise. It's never easy. The fourth one I would share with you, and I would encourage you to think of other schemes, is that Satan provides the narrative to interpret our circumstances. You know, he readily stands by with the story for everything that we go through. You know, we're familiar with political spin and the shaping of narratives, right? They're just a spin-off of Satan's schemes. He's long been preparing us with a storyline to use to handily interpret the events that are going on in our life. I mean, maybe, maybe you can hear some of the storylines. If this relationship doesn't work out, you'll never find someone else. That's a scheme. That's a story, right? If you don't get this promotion, your career will be over. If you're not healed from this disease, it'll prove God was never there for you. That's a story. If you don't get angry and put your foot down, everyone's just going to take advantage of you. If you're honest about what happened, it's going to ruin everything. If you're generous now, you won't have anything to take care of yourself when you need it. Do you ever stop and think about the storylines that you embrace, the scripts that are running in the operating system of your life that determine how you begin to see the circumstances that you're experiencing? Do you ever examine them and wonder, where did they come from? Are they true? Are they set in the real story, the story of the hope of the gospel? Or if somehow am I just living on autopilot with a story that's been given to me from who knows where and dominated by the way it shapes my vision about what's happening? You know, we could go on and on about Satan's schemes, but I think one of the things that I would encourage you to do is begin to examine those scripts. Those scripts are playing all the time. And many times when we're feeling the, the pull of temptation, the difficulty of, of bearing up under what is right, behind it is a story we've already embraced. We're caught by the story well before we get into the circumstances of what are actually going on. The story is preloaded so that when we hit the circumstances, we don't even think about our impulses, our desires. It just feels like the next chapter. But listen, one of the things that we can do is learn to think about these stories that dominate us. Be able to name them. Be able to speak them. You know, no matter what temptation you feel, I would, I would encourage that the next time you face a moment of temptation, or maybe if you look back on this past week and you see a way in which you gave in to the temptation to sin in some way, that you would examine what, what exactly was I believing at that time? What was the story that I was living out? 
If I was able to put that into a narrative that would make sense of one of Satan's schemes, what was he telling me? And just look at that situation and then see if God doesn't have a different story. You see, sometimes what we need to do is be able to examine that story, be able to name that story. I think there's something important about being able to write it down, to be able to put it into words, because those things have power over us until we can see them, identify them, and even communicate them to someone else. One of the best things we can do as a practice is learn to see those, those narratives that Satan feeds into our life, to be able to name them, and to be able to confess that to someone before we make a decision, before we face the circumstance. This is the story that's pulling on my life. And I know usually I would do this next. You see, when we begin to do that, the story begins to lose its power as someone else reminds us of the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is a true story, the more powerful story, and the one that can free us, and we must understand Satan's schemes. But in order that we might better prepare ourselves, let's try and get a better grasp on our second point. So the first thing is we need to make sure that we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. But the second thing he says is we must not be inattentive then to the provided armor. As we consider Paul's instructions here, it becomes obvious that we're to move from a passive to an active role in assuring that we are taking advantage of the full armor of spiritual protection that God has provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we consider Paul's instruction to take up the whole armor of God, listen, look, look at what he says here. Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Verse 13, therefore, because that's true, take up the whole armor of God. Notice twice in the passage, both times the armor is referred to, it's referred to as the armor of God. Now, now it'd be easy to just kind of brush over that as though it's just got this label slapped on it, right? It's just a category. I mean, it very could have easily read, take up your armor. It could have said, equip yourself with the armor that you need. But what it actually says is that in facing spiritual battles, in facing temptation, in order that we might stand, we need to take up the armor of God. It's the armor that belongs to God, that God has given to us for our spiritual protection. It's the armor belongs to God that he has given to us. We're not providing our own armor in the bill. We're outfitted by God's provision. Carrie Julian, our church planning resident who led us in prayer this morning, was reflecting on this passage this week and pointed out this wonderful truth uh, and gift that God gives us here in this passage. He said that the good news here is that God not only has strength for the spiritual power, but God gives strength for the spiritual power. God not only has strength, but he gives it. Spiritual warfare, or to put it plainly in the words of this series, fighting temptation is not a matter of us having strength to get to God, but availing ourselves of the strength that God has brought to us through Christ. Apart from God's provision and protection, we are without the necessary strength to deal with sin 
and temptation and Satan's schemes. And we have hope in the midst of the world, though, because God is greater. In fact, here in Ephesians 6, Paul, it, what's really interesting, you know, I, I just, I was wrestling with this question. What does it mean to put on the armor of God? I mean, it just seems so obvious. Paul is just, he, he just sort of brushes past it as though I knew how to do it. Anybody else feel that way? I mean, I know what, it, I mean, if I had armor, which I don't, some of y'all do, uh, I, I, know, I know how to put on physical armor. And Paul just seems to think, I get it, Right? Now, maybe his first readers got it. Maybe it's something cultural that we've got to understand. But I began to think, what, what would it mean for you to put on spiritual armor? What does, he, what does he want you to do? Because obviously there's something active going on in this passage. Well, Paul is actually using this armor to say that God is keeping a promise of provision to us that he made previously in the Old Testament. There's a reason we read Isaiah chapter 59. It's easy for us to get to Ephesians 6. That would have been written 700-ish years after Isaiah, five to 700 years after that. We, we realize that, it, you know, we think that Paul's just talking. He's just using an analogy that's current. But what he's actually doing is he's referring to a promise from the book of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 59, the one we read and we prayed through this morning. In Isaiah 59, the prospects of mankind in the world are presented with these glim realities. Justice, righteousness, truth, uprightness have all stumbled and fallen, it says, in the public squares. Now that's not a way of just blaming the people out there and saying we got it, they don't. It's saying together, corporately, we have not embraced righteousness. That when you look across our life and culture and the history of mankind, justice, righteousness, truth, they've all been beaten down and they lay fallen in the public squares of our world. Our public squares. Not just our physical public squares in society, the public squares of our homes, of our neighborhoods, of our lives. That... That if we were really to summarize it, we're not a people marked by justice. We're not a people marked by righteousness. We're not a people marked by truth. We'd rather shade the truth than understand it. And he says, he gives this grim presentation. One in which he says even that, that to embrace goodness makes you a prey to the wicked. This is the situation, he says, that, that God looked upon the world and he says the one who wants to walk in uprightness and righteousness will become a prey to the wicked in a world like the one that we live in. That's how honesty will be treated. <laughs> Immediate effects of success in culture and world that we live in don't happen as we embrace goodness and righteousness and meekness and truth. And it grieved the Lord. And in the midst of that, God saw, it says, that there was no warrior who would fight for the cause of what is good. That there wasn't one to stand up. Similar to the wording of David and Goliath, when Goliath shouts to the people of Israel, isn't there anyone to come out and fight? God looks down on his people and says, I've seen no man willing to stand up. And in the midst of that, when he sees that, he says, God's arm then will bring salvation. It will come from God himself. He will wear righteousness like a breastplate. 
It's God's arm that will bring salvation. And He personifies it and gives it as a promise of how He will bring our rescue. It will come from God Himself. And He describes the promise then of Jesus who will, be, who will put on righteousness as a breastplate and salvation as a helmet. He will act as a redeemer on our behalf and His victory will become our victory. He will fight the battle and we will reap the benefits and the rewards. It goes on to say then, He will act as a redeemer and He makes a promise there in Isaiah, one that we didn't read, but at the end of that passage in 59, He makes a promise that to, to Jesus Himself that through the gift of the Holy Spirit, this promise, this victory will be passed on to His spiritual offspring. So Paul here is saying, listen, listen, this is what Paul is saying. In the spiritual battle, Jesus has done what is necessary for the war to be won that we are fighting. He's provided all that he has as our provision for finishing the battle. And God makes a covenant with his son that those who trust in him through the power of the Holy Spirit will have this armor of a promise over their life. And he gives it to them as a word of promise. So what he says, this word, this word of promise that I give to you, of salvation and hope that Jesus has won, will belong to those who are your children. And so he says to Jesus that this powerful spiritual work of salvation is something that will be given as a promise and taken as a gift. This is what's behind his word to take up the armor of God. So Paul here is saying Jesus has won the war that we're fighting and provided all that he possesses as our provision for finishing the battle in our life. And it's now given to us as a promise of God that we're to benefit from when Satan comes knocking on our door. So what we see is that that armor then must be appropriated. You see, this is what he means when he says, take up the armor of God. Not only that the armor has been provided for us in Christ, but that then if we are going to walk in the experience of what Jesus has already given us birth into, that we will have to appropriate that promise over our life so that we are not foolish to Satan's schemes. Notice in the text, put on the armor of God. He's appropriated. Get it on. Take up. Fasten it to yourself, he says. Put it on. Again, this is, these are the phrases. Take up the shield of faith and the sword. Do you hear the language? It's actively clothing ourselves in the promise of what Jesus has accomplished so that it affects our practice. So how do we put on the whole armor of God? Let me just try to say it plain to you in three or four ways to see if one of them just hits you in sticks. We move the promises of the gospel from our passive memory to our active memory so they dominate our circumstances. We put on the armor of God when we don't live our life on autopilot. When we look at our circumstances and understand them from the perspective of what Jesus has provided and what Jesus says over our life. That means there are times in our life where we are being taken on by the schemes of the devil where we have to remember clearly what Jesus has accomplished for us. So we move them from passive. This is... 
This is what I think is true in the background of our life too. This thing's true and it matters for how I respond right now. We rehearse those things with uh, with a sense of vivid clarity so that now in our circumstances we're not just overwhelmed by what has us afraid, what is pulling at us, but we're reminded of God's goodness and provision in Jesus. So we move the promises of the gospel from our passive memory to our active memory so they dominate our circumstances. We make ourselves aware of these truths so that we are not taken by the schemes. Another way to say it is we draw on the resources Jesus has given us in salvation in a conscious way in every circumstance. So there's lots of resources. One of them is pointed out here that we become skilled in using the word of God, that we would have that as a resource in our life. That means we have to be able to draw on that skill in situations where we can wield the truth of God's word. So without dedicated study and understanding and devotion to reading God's word, we will be ill-equipped and find ourselves inept in spiritual battle. So taking up the armor of God is becoming skilled in God's word by taking up the, the sword that the spirit uses to put down our enemy. We draw on the resources. God has given us a body to belong to, a community where we can embrace these truths, encourage one another, but if we live isolated lives, we don't draw on the resources that God has provided, and we don't wear the armor of God together. We have no protection. Together, we stand united. This is actually a corporate call to being armed. Another way to say it is we learn to name the benefits of the gospel in our life rather than assume them. We rehearse all the ways that the gospel has given us hope, has provided forgiveness, changes our identity, renews our purpose, provides truth and clarity. We regularly rehearse those things together so that they're at the top of our minds in every circumstance, and by doing so, we're reminded of truth. We don't try to earn our own righteousness. We know that we have a God who saves us in circumstances where we think there are no hope. We learn to name the benefits of the gospel in our life rather than assume them. We do not go far in any day or in any moment without remembering the significance of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You see, there are spiritual battles in your life for which remembering these things are the real answer. That's because Jesus is our righteousness. Though we've sinned, we're told that the devil cannot bring an accusation against us Because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, has paid the price for our sin. He gives us his righteousness when we unite ourselves to him by faith. We are righteous in God's sight. And when you are beaten down again and you think that that you carry too much shame to draw near to the throne of the grace of God, we remember we don't come in our own righteousness, we come in his. And we take up the armor. We remember because Jesus is our truth. We don't celebrate our own perspective and our own Truth, we rest in the truth, big T, that God can never be denied. 
Though people around us may say the opposite of what God says about our lives, Jesus tells us that we've sinned. That our lives will not be helped by continuing in the rebellion, but that we can come to him. And as we acknowledge our sin, he proclaims his love for us and he redeems us. He tells us the truth about just how deep that sin can go. But he also tells us the truth that his love goes deeper still and the hope of salvation can draw us up further out of the pit than we ever imagined. And we let him name us. We let him tell us who we are. We let him give us purpose. And we trust that our identity is what he says we are. The only thing that will ultimately matter is what Jesus says about us. All else is just opinion. We remember because Jesus is our truth. We remember because Jesus is our salvation. When we feel like we're lost and hopeless and there's no way out, we remember that Jesus has already won the battle and promises our ultimate rescue. There's no headshot right now in your life that can erase the resurrection promise of Jesus over you. Our future is one of absolute hope because Jesus is our salvation. Our head is protected. The power of the resurrection means that that no disease can ultimately steal what God promises to give. No disease in your life can steal abundant life from now to eternity. Oh, it can it can kill you. Let's be honest. But the fear is sapped from that because we have a promise. Jesus rose from the dead and promises to raise to life all those who have trusted their life to him. He's united us to the power of God, to the purpose of God, to the hope of God's eternal victory over all of his enemies so that we could know that one day, no matter how miserable life may become for the moment, that we await the blessing of our Father. So there's nothing that can can rob us of what God intends to give. No headshot that can ultimately kill us. We remember that Jesus is our shield. Our faith is in him. There's nothing that can be said of us or an accusation or condemnation that will stick because Jesus has known all along just how deep our sin might take us. And we hide behind Jesus when the enemy accuses us. We take refuge in him. I'm not going to exhaust the armor, but in every circumstance, it says, we are told that in order to stand, we need to know and understand what Jesus has provided for us in the gospel through his life, death, and resurrection. The promises of our deliverance, our position has not changed, but today he invites us to take up in practice what he has given by promise. And to take up the armor of God, to walk in it, to have confidence, to get back up if we've fallen. For your victory is sure. There is one who surrounds you that guarantees that at the end, as you trust in him, the victory will be sweet. Sweeter than the pain. Sweeter than the temporary pleasure that would separate you from his promises, that there's much joy for an eternity around the table of God and that his promises are the only ones that are secure. I want to ask that you would bow your heads with me as we go into a time of prayer. And before we
before we sing together and we receive the Lord's Supper, we've taken this time to, be, to remember, hopefully in some vivid ways, things that we need to be reminded of. But maybe you're here today and you would, you would confess right where you're at that there's never been a time in your life where you have come under Jesus' spiritual rescue for you. The most important thing you could know is that Jesus' death on the cross was for your sins so that you could experience forgiveness so that you could come back into the refuge of God's kindness over your life. That you could know the living God and have a relationship with Him who promises to provide spiritual protection for us in the most difficult battles. And today, today, if you've never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, you can take the first step of turning from your sin and entrusting yourself to Him. Right there where you're at, maybe, maybe the Lord's speaking to you today. As our worship team prepares to, to lead us in a song, we don't want to just move on and head out into our day, into another week until we respond to what God is doing. Today, right there in your seat, maybe you'd say, I've never put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but today, I want to begin a relationship with Him. If that's you, nobody's looking around. Everybody's head's bowed. Their eyes are closed. I'm not going to call you up front. But if you would say, today, I'd like you to pray for me. I'd like to take the first step in a relationship with God. Just slip your hand up right where you're at. Say, I know that I'm not a Christian, but today I want to put my faith and trust in the spiritual provision of Jesus. And Lord, we just pray right now, God, that you would help us to, to understand and to learn to live under your protection. Lord, that we might see the armor that you've provided in Jesus Christ, that we would rest in it, but Lord, that we would be, be so aware of the ways that you want to prepare us for victory in our life. God, I pray that you would bring to mind in our own hearts the ways that we can walk in your strength. Lord, we pray that you would cause us by your spirit to have insight into our lives and into one another so that we could be strong in you and in the power of your might. That your strength and power would rest over our lives. That you would break strongholds that have long captivated us. And Lord, that you would be glorified as we're set free and celebrate and rejoice as we trust in the promise over our life. Lord, may you work by your spirit even now in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper and we're going to celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And, and really, every time we come to this point in a service, we have the opportunity to do this, this work of taking things that we've assumed or are passive in our thoughts and memory and put them at the forefront as we rest in the promises of the gospel and fight the spiritual battle that lies before us. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you to join us in taking the bread and the cup. We've provided that on the way in. If you didn't have a chance to get the bread and the cup as you came in, as we sing this song together, feel free to, to go back to the table as we prepare to bear this testimony together. Let's stand to our feet. Before